So when you mention the name King David, when you mention the name of, of King David, people will immediately make some sort of connection. Some people, when they hear King David, they're going to think, oh, that's, that's David and Goliath. Yeah, that's, that's who that David is. Or, or somebody else might say, well, well David, yeah, he's, he's a teenage boy who Samuel came and anointed to be the king over Israel. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I get that. I get that. Somebody else might make the connection about David, and they might think about um, maybe David, the, the, the great warrior. Or, or maybe, it's, maybe it's David, the, the great king, possibly the greatest king that Israel has ever had. Maybe, maybe when they think about David, maybe the connection is, well, it's David and Jonathan, and they had that close friendship. Or maybe when they think about David, they think about when, when, when David, uh, when, when his son was born to Bathsheba, or his child was born to Bathsheba, and, she, and, and, and the child died, and David had this tremendous confidence that that child, the infant baby, had gone to be with the Lord. Whatever it is, people hear the name King David, and there's usually some sort of connection. Oh, I know who that is. That's King David from the Bible. That's David and Goliath. But none of these things are what God remembers about David. You know, we've kind of been through this and, 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 and understood a little bit about King David. And so if you were to turn to the book of Acts, there's a guy by the, guy by the name of the Apostle Paul. And Paul is having an opportunity where he's teaching some people about Jesus. And, and he's addressing these people. And these people knew their Jewish history very well. They knew all about Israel, Israelite history. And so Paul's trying to, to explain to these people exactly who Jesus is. And he starts and he goes back to, to tell some stories from the history of Israel. And he says, hey, remember, remember when Israel demanded a king and God gave them Saul? And of course, they would have said, yes, yes, we know our history. We remember that very well. And so Paul, Paul then says this in Acts chapter 13, verse 22. He says, and when God had removed Saul, God raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. God doesn't remember David as being that faithful warrior, as being that, that amazing king. He remembers David as being a man after his own heart. A man who did the will of God. When God said go to the left, David went to the left. When God said go to the right, David went to the right. And that is what God remembers about David. And as we've been in this sermon series, looking at the life of David, we've had the opportunity to say, David was a man after God's own heart. How can you and I become men and women and teenagers and children after God's own heart? So today... Today we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Encourage you, if you have a Bible, if you want to flip to 2 Samuel chapter 6. If you need a Bible, just slip your hand up. We've got an usher in the back. He'd love to come and, and bring one of these uh, to you. 2 Samuel chapter 6, we're going to see another important lesson on becoming men and women after God's own heart. You see, in this chapter, we're going to, we're going to read about two men. This chapter is going to be about two men. The first man is lying dead. The second man is dancing around. And somehow from these two lives, these two men, we're going to learn something about the presence of God. You see, the presence of God is actually the focal point of this chapter. In this chapter, there's something called the Ark of the Covenant. 
No, Indiana Jones didn't create that. It didn't come from Indiana Jones. The Ark of the Covenant represented uh, God's presence in the Old Testament. And so we're going to see even David, this is what he wants to know. In 2 Samuel 6 verse 9, David says, how can the Ark of the Lord come to me? His concern is how can the presence of God come to me? I want the presence of God around me. How can I have the presence of God in my life? I think about, isn't isn't this a kind of question that we would want to ask ourselves as well? How could I have God's presence around me? Mothers in this room, many of them have spent hours upon hours praying and saying, God, how can your presence overcome my children? I want my children to walk in your presence, God. As, As husbands and fathers, we pray and say, God, I want your presence to fill my home. I want your presence to to just be flowing out of my home. And I think I think about our church. I think about being a pastor of a church. This becomes my same concern. I want God's presence. I want God's touching. I want God's healing. I want God's God's helping in our midst. I want God's presence amongst us. So we're going to look in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And we're going to study and learn about the presence of God. Before we do that, I'm going to ask you just to join me in prayer. God, I'm not sure if there's a person in here who wouldn't want your presence around them. So God, I pray that this would be a real message to us today. God, I pray that you would speak to us. God, I pray that you would help us to understand your presence and how we can experience your presence around us. God, I pray that your presence would come right now and would fill this room. That, God, we would feel that presence around us now. That you would help us to understand. That, God, you would speak to us just as we need to hear today. God, you know exactly what it is we need to hear. You knew what happened this week. You know what's coming in front of us. So, God, I pray that you would encourage us and meet with us now. God, we ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen. So the context of 2 Samuel chapter 6, it, it takes place in Jerusalem. And if you remember last week, we learned that David has now become king over all of Israel. And he's gone into uh, the city of Jerusalem, the city of David, and he's taken it captive. He's taken it and said, this is going to be our headquarters so we can unify our nation. So Saul, the former king, he's dead. But unfortunately, some of the results of Saul's life still echo throughout the kingdom. Saul, one of the things he had done is he had compromised and he had neglected God. And now that kind of permeates throughout the kingdom of God, throughout the kingdom of Israel. And so here we see David. He's the new king. Remember, he's the man after God's own heart. And here's how 2 Samuel chapter 6 starts. Verse 1, it says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the children who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahael, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahael went before the ark. You see... As we read this chapter, we're going to see that somehow everything in this chapter, 
the, the death of the first man and the, the dancing of the second man, it is related to this ark that they are talking about here. This, this box is called the ark of God or the ark of the covenant. You see it in verse 2. And, and for us to understand about the presence of God and about this chapter, we have to understand a little bit about this box and about what this box is. This, this, this box uh, called the Ark of the Covenant um, was commissioned to be created by God through Moses. And so Moses is the one that really set the standard, said this is what we're going to do. And, and the box is not a very large box. It's probably three foot nine inches uh, long, probably two foot three inches wide, two foot three inches tall. It's not very long. It's not very big. It's plated on both the inside and out with pure gold. So the box is made of wood, but it's, got, it's completely plated inside and out with, with gold. Inside of the box contained three of Israel's most precious artifacts. One of the things that contained was it contained a jar of, of unspoiled manna. If you think back to the history of Israel, as, as Moses led the Israelites out of Israel, out of, out of, Egypt, out of slavery, into the promised land. They had that 40 years in the wilderness, and God miraculously provided food for them, provided this manna that would wake up every day, and that God would feed them this manna. And so they had this jar of unspoiled manna that they've got inside of this box. The second thing they had was, was Aaron, who was, who was Moses' assistant. He had this staff that he used to walk around. And, and there was at one point that this staff, even though it had been cut off, even though there was no roots, this staff blossomed. And so they kept this staff, and this staff was in this, this box. And the third thing they had was they had probably the most precious stones we could ever imagine. They had the stones that the Ten Commandments were written on that God gave to Moses on the mountain. So inside this box, you have these three very special artifacts to the nation of Israel. On top of this box was, 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 a, was a grate, uh, was, a, was a seat, basically. Uh, a see-through covering that they would call the mercy seat. And on either end of that mercy seat, there were these two cherubim. This is kind of like an angel. And these cherubim uh, are sitting there, and they're facing each other, and their wings are outstretched over this mercy seat, and their eyes of these cherubim are looking down on that seat. Everything about this box was symbolic. These angelic cherubim, they represented the majesty of God, watching over the law and watching over the needs of the people. The manna, the manna, that was a symbol of God's provision. The, 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 the staff was a symbol of God's power, and, and the commandments were a symbol of God's precepts or God's law. And the whole Ark of the Covenant, what it was, is it was a, it was a symbol, it was a representation, it was where God's presence resided. And so what would happen is during the temple era, the, the Ark of the Covenant was placed in the very center of the temple, in a place called the Holy of Holies. And, and what would happen is once a year, only once a year, the high priest would have to go into uh, and have an audience with the ark. And before he could do that, he had to go and offer these, these personal sacrifices for repentance of his own sins. He had to make himself right with God. And then he would go into this holy of holies and have this, this, this opportunity to offer a sacrifice, to offer the blood of an innocent lamb onto that mercy seat, paying for the sins of the people. The, the legend has it that when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, that they would tie a rope around his ankle in case coming into the presence of God, in case he was stricken. 
from the presence of God. That way they could pull him out and he wasn't left in there alone. So if you're an Israelite, you think the Ark of the Covenant is kind of a special thing, kind of a big deal. I mean, I mean, we think about this. What if, what if today in our day, what if we had the very manger that Jesus was born in? What if we had the very cross that Jesus died on? How much would we cherish those items? How much would we say, let's protect them, let's cherish them, let, let's, let's be very, very, very careful with them because we want to we celebrate and remember the significance of them. You'd think it would be the same thing with the Ark of the Covenant. But it's not necessarily what happened when, when Saul was king. Because under the leadership of Saul, the Ark sat in a basement for over 30 years collecting dust. It sat in the basement of a, of a priest named Abinadab who lived seven miles west of Jerusalem. But here's David, the new king, the man after God's own heart. And he will not live apart from the presence of God. He knows the secret to life. He knows the secret to life isn't just luck. The secret to life isn't just trying harder. The secret to life isn't a better education. He knows that the key to life is the presence of God. The key to life is the presence of God. So David, as soon as he settles into Jerusalem, he makes the return of the ark. He makes the return of the presence of God his very first and top priority. And what he does is he plans this huge parade. Think like Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. A huge parade. He invites 30,000 Israelites. Hey, come and, and celebrate with us. Come and celebrate the, the presence of God being returned to our city. And so they gather at the home of Abinadab, the priest. And Abinadab's, Abinadab's two sons, Uzzah and Ahio, are, are put in charge of the transport. And so they load the ark on, it, on a wagon that's pulled by an ox. And they begin the march to Jerusalem. And everything goes fine for the first two miles. Until they hit a rough patch of road. They hit a rough patch of road. And the ark begins to shake a little bit. And this is what it says this happens in verse 6. It says, and when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down because of his heir. And he died there beside the ark. You can imagine that would dampen the parade really quickly. The celebration, the party would be over. Uzzah, sensing that the holy box was about to fall off the wagon, all he does is reach out his hand to steady the box. He reaches out his hand to prevent it from falling, and boom, suddenly, God's anger is kindled against him, and he is smitten dead. We think about the story of Uzzah. What a tragedy. What a terrible tragedy. But there is a profound lesson about the presence of God that we have to understand from his story. He teaches us that God comes on his own terms. God's presence, it comes on God's own terms. You see, long before Uzzah, God had given very specific instructions as to the care and as to the transportation of this ark. Leviticus 16, Numbers 4, you can turn and you can read these instructions for yourselves. God was very clear that the priests, and only the priests were people, were allowed to carry the ark. And in fact, before they could carry the ark, they had to go and they offer 
personal, sacri- personal sacrifices of repentance for their sin before they could carry the Ark of the Covenant. Secondly, it was, it was, it was described that the Ark was not to be carried by human hands. Rather, they, the, the, the priests were supposed to take acacia poles and, and carry the, 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 the ark on acacia poles. So on this box, there were four rings on the four corners of this box. And the priests would take these acacia poles and slip it through. And then they would lift it up with these acacia poles. And they would carry it on their shoulders to wherever it was going. And finally, Numbers 4 verse 15 says, says this. And it says, And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out, after the sons of uh, Kohath shall carry these things, but they must not touch the holy things, lest they die. Very clear. You carry it, but you don't touch it. Because if you touch it, you die. Drastic consequences. And you think of Binabad, Binadab and his two sons. Man, they were priests. They should have known these things. They should have known the, the terms that God set for transporting the ark. See, what happens, though, is with God, there's kind of two extremes that people can fall into. There's two extremes that are wrong on either side, but sometimes we fall on either one of these extremes. The first extreme is to focus on God's transcendence. This is the idea that God is so holy, God is so righteous, God is so just, God is so perfect, and we are not. We're broken. We're sinful people. And since God is so high and mighty, and since we are so weak and lowly, that we don't have any right to approach God. God is just too righteous and too pure for us. That's one extreme. But the second extreme is to stress God's imminence. This is where we look at God and say, God, he's just one of the guys. He's just one of our friends. He's just, he's just another, another dude. And we have this casual relationship with him. See, a biblical view of God, it balances out these two views. That God is, is yes, God is high. God is righteous. God is holy. And we are sinful human beings who can't look upon him. Yet at the same time, God extends himself into a relationship with us through his son, Jesus Christ. And so a proper view of God has this idea that God is righteous and holy, yet we also have his imminence, and it's somewhere in the middle. It's not falling on either extreme. But see, what happened here with Uzzah is it seems like he fell to that extreme of of God's imminence. His, His view of God was out of proportion. The holiness of God became just another day. The, 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 the moving of the ark, the moving of the presence of God was just like moving another piece of furniture. Throw it in the back of the truck and let's get going. The sacred had become a second rate. God's commands for the ark, they were, they were exchanged for convenience. Convenience of moving on a wagon instead of poles. The convenience of using an ox instead of priests. There is no obedience There is no sacrifice. There's just convenience, efficiency, and regularity. The image of this dead man should be sobering to us. It should be a sobering reminder to those of us who want God's presence in our lives. I mean, we think about about our world. We can attend church as often as we want. 
and we can pursue God and we can seek God's presence. But then we think about Uzzah laying dead. And the message is this. The message is very clear. Don't grow careless in your worship of God. Don't grow careless. Don't become lax. Don't let your worship of God become negligent, careless, sloppy, indifferent. Don't let your worship of God just become a ritual, something that you just do just, just to go through the motions. Don't let your worship of God become like that. I mean, I think about this. I think about how many times, how many times we live like hell Monday through Saturday. But then we show up for an hour and a half on Sunday morning because we want God's presence. We want to acknowledge God on Monday through Saturday, but we'll show up on Sunday morning because we do want his blessing. We do want his, 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 his blessing in our life. How many times do we come into church? We think, man, man, I got nothing out of church today. See, any time that we gather with God's people, Anytime we gather with God's people and God's word is opened up, his presence is with us. His presence is here. And maybe instead of there being something wrong with the church, maybe there's something wrong with your worship. Or maybe there's something wrong with your heart. Maybe it's you that's the issue and not the church. Yes, God comes. And yes, we can have his presence. But God comes on his own terms. You know what his terms are? His terms are our commands to be obeyed, our hearts to be cleaned, our, our sin to be confessed. These are the terms of God if we want his presence. So yes, we can have a, a personal relationship with God. Yes, God can be, we can become a friend of God. God's presence is available to you and I, but it is on his terms, not ours. Makes me think, what are those areas of our lives that we are unwilling to submit to him? What are some of the terms that he's given for us that we are unwilling to submit to? I think of a couple different areas. I think about the church. I think about the church. You know, we are called as Christians to be a part of the body of Christ. We are called to gather together in, in, in the body of Christ with the church, with the people of God. That's not just a, a casual relationship, come and go as you please. That is a command that we're to be committed to the, to the body of Christ, to each other. There's a benefit to it. When we commit to the church, there is accountability, there's support, there's encouragement. There's all these things that, that, that God understood that we needed. And so he called us to commit to the church. And it makes me, makes me hurt when I begin to look at people who have such a casual relationship with the church. Oh, I can just come and go as I please. I can just, you know, I, I don't like this, so I'm going to go someplace else. And, and I'm not really going to get deep in the church. I don't want to get known in the church because that might get uncomfortable because then I might be held accountable. You see, God has his terms. His terms are he's called us to commit to the body of Christ. To some regard, there has to be us willing to say, okay, God, this is your terms. I'm going to submit to this. I mean, this idea of the terms of God could go a number of different ways. I think about marriage. I think about this is what God said. This is how, how your relationship should look like. You need to be married before you have sexual intercourse. Before you experience the benefits of marriage, 
You need to make that commitment to each other. But it's so easy for us just to casually say, well, you know, maybe someday I'll get around to it. Maybe not here, maybe not now. But these are his terms. This is what he said. This is the way it's supposed to be done. These are his terms. Are we willing to submit to his terms? Or are we going to say, no, God, I'm going to do it my way. Because it kind of looks like Uzzah did it his way. I don't think it had the best of results for Uzzah. Makes me wonder, what, what terms of God are you struggling to submit to today? What do you need to come and say, God, this is what your word says. This is how I'm supposed to live. And today I'm going to submit that to you. God, it's hard, but I'm going to do it your way because, God, I want your presence in my life. David's response to the slaying of Uzzah is anything but joyful. The story continues in verse 8. It says, and David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Para Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained at the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. David is discouraged. He retreats back to Jerusalem. He's confused. He's hurt. He's angry. Three months pass before David is willing to go back and try it again. Three months pass, but this time David comes back to get the ark with a very different protocol. Verse 12. It says, And when it was told to King David, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal. This time, David goes to get the ark, but he does things a little different. This time, there's priests that replace the oxen. This time, there's sacrifice instead of convenience. There's a, First Chronicles tells the same narrative, the same story. And First Chronicles says that before the priests picked up the ark, that they uh, prepared themselves. They consecrated their hearts for service of the Lord. And they used those acacia poles to carry the ark on their shoulders, just as God had commanded through Moses long ago. And notice, notice this wasn't a hurry. This wasn't a, hey, throw it in the back of the truck. Let's get there as soon as we can. Verse 13 says, that they had gone six steps. And after six steps, David stopped. And David offered a, a sacrifice, an ox and a fatted animal. And when he sees that God is not angry, he proceeds the march. In fact, there's another story, there's legend that says this happened every six steps. Every six steps, David stopped, offered a sacrifice, made sure God wasn't angry. And then they took another six steps and did this all the way for the remaining five miles to Jerusalem. And they finally get there. And verse 14 says, And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the horn. David brings the presence of God into the city. And here, can you picture David? 
It says he is dancing before God with all of his might. Now, I know, we're not supposed to talk about dancing in church. Or maybe we are. I'm not really sure how am I supposed to feel about this. But here, David is dancing before God. We're talking somersaults. We're talking high kicks. We're talking spinning. We're jumping. We're talking, we're talking doing the whip and nae We're talking the Cupid shuffle. We're talking the whole works. David is letting it go before God. And not only is David dancing, but David strips down to his ephod, his linen prayer vest. An ephod, basically it covers the same distance, the same coverage as a long t-shirt. Somewhere between his thighs and his knees. Somewhere between there. So here's David in front of God's presence. In front of all of the people. And he strips down to his holy skivvies. And he dances with all of his might. You see, the presence of God results in our worship. The presence of God should result in our worship. When I hear about David dancing in his holy skivvies, though, I mean, we just read the story about Uzzah, and it kind of makes me concerned, hey, what's going to happen next? I mean, we saw what happened to Uzzah. We saw what happened when somebody is arrogant before God, when somebody is careless before God. Well, man, what's going to happen to David? David's dancing. I mean, surely, surely God would not permit dancing in his presence. Surely God would not allow this. Surely God's going to send down fire from heaven and, and smite David right there. But there's nothing. There's no fire from heaven. There's nothing that happens. Doesn't David dancing before God, doesn't that bother God? What is, what is the difference between David dancing before God and Uzzah putting his hand out to stop the ark from falling? What's, what's the difference? Why isn't God angered by David's dance? God probably wasn't angered by David's dance for the same reason that I didn't get angry. You see, when my kids were younger, there's... Some of them are still young. But when my kids were younger, one of my favorite times of the day was coming home from work. Because it was so wonderful. Because I'd pull my car into the driveway. And the kids would be sitting at the window. And my car pulled into the driveway. It was like the sign. And all of a sudden, that car pulls in. The front door flings open. And there's, there's singing. There's dancing. I mean, it doesn't matter if kids are in their diapers. It doesn't matter if they're in their pajamas. I come in. The kids are throwing a party. Dance home. Let's celebrate. Let's party. Woohoo! And it was, it was a celebration. And, and as a dad, man, I wish they would. You guys just do that now. Come on. Wouldn't that be great? Not in your underwear, though. Keep your pants on. Now, When I come home from work and my kids are celebrating and dancing, am I telling them, hey, knock that off? Hey, we we should be concerned about what the neighbors think right now. Hey, hey, kids, grow up a little bit. Show some maturity. No way. No way. I loved it. I, 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 I soaked it up. It was such a good memory of our kids when they were younger. And does God tell David To knock it off? No way. No way. You see, as we study David's story in the Bible, the Bible at no other time portrays David as dancing. When David killed Goliath, there's no victory dance. There's no, aha, you suck, I win. 
when, when, when David was anointed king over the nation of Israel, there's no grand ball. There's no fancy waltz to celebrate his, his, his becoming the king. No. When God came to town, it's the only time that David is seen dancing and celebrating. It makes me wonder how our worship can be so stale. It makes me wonder why we can be so still, why we can be so silent during the worship of God. Why is our worship so weak? Maybe, maybe we don't enjoy the thing that David wanted so badly. Remember what it was that David wanted? Remember his question? His question was, how can the ark, how can the presence of God come to me? David knew what he wanted no, David knew what he needed. He needed God's presence. And David understood very simply, a very simple truth. God's present is his presence. His greatest gift is himself. And that's worth all the celebration that we can give. I mean, I think about this. I think about this week. I, it, was a, it was a great week. We had a fantastic job at the harvest party. Danielle, thank you for all the work you put into that. You put a lot of behind the scenes. Just want to make sure we say thank you. But it was so fun to be able to go be at this harvest party and watch these kids decorated and dressed up, having so much fun playing the, the same silly games over and over again and getting, getting oodles of candy. This week I had the opportunity, I say, to, to hold baby Evelyn. And, and it's such a tremendous thing. These little babies just, just melt your heart. We think about all that this world has to offer, all the good things. I think, about, I think about sunsets. I think about the beach. I think about newborn babies. But you know, if we take all those things away, if there are no sunsets, if there is no ocean, if there are no newborn babies with their tender hearts, we still have a reason to dance. And it's because of the presence of God. Because God has given us his presence. He's promised us his presence. Jesus, before he returned up to heaven to prepare a place for us, he said in Matthew 28, he says, And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In Hebrews, it tells us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This must be what David knew. This must be what God wants us to know. That we are never, ever alone. That his presence is always available to us. God loves you too much to leave you alone. So he hasn't. I mean, how can we not be overcome with, with joy and, and praise and celebration and even dancing when, when, when God's promised us that he won't leave us alone in our fear? That he won't leave us alone in our worry. That he won't leave you alone in your disease. That he won't leave you alone even in your death. God's presence has been promised to you. How can we not celebrate and worship and dance and sing and clap and, and, and celebrate just as our kids do when we come home from work? Uzzah, somehow he missed this. He had this small view of God. That, that, you know, God's supposed to fit into this box. And, and, and because of that, God needed help with his balance. God doesn't need help with his balance. So Uzzah, 
He didn't prepare for God. He didn't purify himself to encounter God. There's no sacrifice offered. There's no commands to be observed. Forget repentance and obedience. No, let's just throw God on the back of the truck and let's just keep going and go with convenience and regularity and going through the motions. See, in our case, we live for hell like six days and then we try and cash in on Sunday grace. Or, or we say, you know, it doesn't really matter what we believe. I'll just wear this cross around my neck for good luck. Or, 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 or maybe, maybe we'll light some candles and maybe we'll say a few prayers hoping to get God on our side. You see, Uzzah's story, his lifeless body, should be a warning against such irreverence. God's not looking for a casual relationship God's not looking for friends with benefits. He's looking for the real deal. He's looking for, for reverence, for obedience, for a, for a, for a God-hungry heart. And when he sees that, he is a personal God who loves and who heals and who helps and who intervenes. So yes, a reverent heart and a dancing foot can belong in the same person. David had both. He had a reverent heart, yet he still danced before the Lord. My prayer is that you and I could have the same. Would you bow your heads with me? God, your presence is probably the thing I desire most in my life. Your presence on this church, something I pray for daily. Your presence over each of these people here today, God, that's what I want to see. I want to see your presence over all and every one of us. God, I pray that you would help us to understand how to have that balanced view of who you are. That, God, you aren't just one of the guys. You aren't just someone I like on Facebook and casually go through a a relationship with you. No, God, you've called us to more. You've called us to deeper. God, I pray that we will come to you on your terms. God, you've set terms very clearly. We don't come to you because we're good people. We don't come into a relationship with you because we try hard. We don't come into a relationship with you because we're so awesome and we have so much to offer. We come into a relationship with you because we are broken. And because Jesus died on the cross in our place. It required the death of your son, Jesus, so we could have your presence with us. God, I pray that we would have the the right kind of reverence towards that. The right kind of awe for who you are and for what you've done through Jesus. But God, I pray that you would help us to understand that other balance, that your presence is with us now, that you've promised us to be with us always. God, help us to have that balanced view. God, help us to repent of being indifferent, of becoming lax, of just taking our Christianity and our faith and just going through the motions. God, help us to repent of of not coming to you on your terms, but instead saying, God, this is what I'm willing to give you. God, help us, convict us, help us to repent of that. God, I pray for renewed joy in your presence. God, I pray that you would help each and every one of us, that we would celebrate your presence, 
that we would we would dance, that we would worship, that we would praise, that we would sing, because God, you are worthy of all of that. Your presence makes all things possible. And how can we contain ourselves if we understand that we have your presence? God, I just wonder if you're in here today, what is your next step? What is God calling you to do now? Maybe you're here today and you're struggling with having that balanced view of God. It's an opportunity to say, how can we help you grow in that? To understand God for who he is. That he is both of these ideas. He is high and righteous and holy. And he's also available to us. Let us walk alongside you with that. Let us help you to grow and to understand. Maybe your next step here today. Maybe you've had that indifference. Maybe your faith, you've just been going through the motions. You haven't been passionate. You haven't been pursuing. You've become lax. Maybe you haven't been coming to God on his terms. Maybe today is the day that you repent of that. Say, God, I'm sorry. God, I'm humbling myself before you and saying, God, I want to come to you on your terms. God, I want to experience your presence. And I know I've got to do things your way. So God, I'm, I'm, I'm emptying myself before you today and saying, God, I'm yours. God, I will do things the way that you've called us to. Despite my fear, despite my hesitation, I'm opening myself up to you because you are good.